Hi, everyone. Before we get started, I wanted to introduce you to a wonderful podcast. It's called Kites and Strings, a podcast about creativity and the tension experienced by those who prioritize creativity. It's hosted by two registered art therapists and licensed professional counselors who are also creatives. In Kites and Strings, they explore creativity, how it's discovered and fostered, why it's important for humankind, and how it helps us with our own sense of balance and and personal well-being. Along the way, they interview guests from all over the creative spectrum, like me, who have found their own success living their creative lives. You can find Kites and Strings wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to bonus episode two of Mentors on the Mic. I am so happy to give you this particular episode. So on Instagram, my Instagram at Michelle Simone Miller, I put out a poll to you lovely people on what kind of bonus episodes you'd like to see, what kind of guests and mentors you'd like me to get for season two of Mentors on the Mic. And everyone really wanted to hear more from directors. And so I decided to put together a bonus episode. You know, for many podcasts, they do an end of the year highlight reel, some of the best stories. But I really am just so in love with every episode of my podcast. It's just my own personal opinion, and it was hard to choose. So instead, I broke it down by role. So I chose highlights and specific examples and stories from four directors on the podcast. So I chose highlights, and I I especially wanted to talk about transitions. On the podcast, we talk about you know, how people start and how people move up. So transitions just felt very important. How do you become a director? Okay. And, and that could be so many different answers. And there, there are so many different answers, but that includes how you started as a director and includes when you, you know, kept going, how did you move up in your chosen field as a director? And people had different ways. We have some mentors who became producers first and then started directing. We have others who right off the bat just found ways to direct every type of project and and theater and film, TV, all of it. So I want to delve into this. I didn't want to make this a long episode, but I chose short clips from some of my favorite directors. So our first clip is from our first mentor, episode one, Stan Brooks. Now, I personally am so grateful that he was my first episode. It's still one of the highest rated episodes and highest listened to. And Emmy winning producer and director Stan Brooks has just done so much in his incredible career. And in this particular clip, he tells this incredibly memorable story about starting in the industry after film school in the mailroom. Well, my parents still didn't quite understand what I had done, that they sent this kid off to Brandeis University, which had this amazing track record of getting people into business school, medical school and law school. And I was going to what? Film school? Because I had no family in the business. I didn't know anybody in the business. It was really a total shot in the dark. And and then when you're there, it's such a beautifully fantastic small bubble that you're inside. And they want you to feel like you have a chance because then, of course, you know, all the people that came before you, whether, you know, David Lynch or the, on the producer side as well. And and you went, OK, well, I'm going to be one of those. It's, you know, if, I, I don't care that the success rate might be one in three. 
get a job in the business, I'm going to be one of those. So when you get out, you're kind of like, okay. And uh, I got two meetings, neither one of them produced a job. And in the meantime, I was sort of coming up with ideas and trying to pitch them and selling nothing. You know, time was ticking by. And I think it was my dad went to my sister. He wouldn't ask me directly. My dad went to my sister and said, what do you think your brother's going to do? At what point do you think he'll give this up and go back to school and get a degree in something. So she came and told me that. And I went, oh, okay, yeah. that was enough motivation to, okay, no, this is not, I'm not giving this up. So someone said, I know, I, I heard there might be a job at this TV company, Filmways. So I went over there, they saw my resume and I thought I was going to go in maybe and get a job as a reader. And uh, the guy looked at me and said, I have one job available. It's in the mailroom. And I, I'm, I'm sure I blanched because he looked at me, he goes, <laughs> are you too good for that? <laughs> and I said, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I'll take it. He said, okay, it starts Monday. And then the story yeah. I told at your- I uh, love this story, yeah. At your panel, I had breakfast with my grandfather every every Friday while he was alive and I was in town. And that Friday, we were at the Stage Deli in Century City and he always ordered the same thing every week, raisin toast and black coffee. And he said, between bites of raisin toast, so what are you going to wear? And I said, I, I don't know. I really thought about what I'm going to wear. I'm going to be in a mailroom delivering mail. And he said, well, what do you think you should wear? And I said, I don't know, a nice shirt and a pair of jeans. And he said, no, you're going to wear a jacket and tie. And I said, in a mail room? He said, aren't you delivering mail to all the people that could get you a job someday in your career? And I said, well, yeah, they're producers and actors that have deals at the company. And he said, yes. And aren't they going to see you delivering mail? I go, well, maybe they, maybe their assistants. And he said, wear a jacket and tie. And so I did. And I got in there and there was like four people in the mailroom and the rest of them were wearing like Metallica and Kiss shirts and cut off jeans. And I was the one guy in a, in a jacket and tie. And within less than, I think, a week, I moved on to being an assistant to one of the producers under a deal there. Wow. See, that's yeah, a lot. Rick, Rick Rosner. Yeah. And, and it says not even just that like concept of dress for success, but, but it also sort of applies it's like dress for the job you want. Which yes. I, I love. And I think it's true. I think, you know, you you coming in and, and dressing as a role that you want or to be taken seriously, that showed. Yeah. And it, it also takes some chutzpah it does. because I knew that I knew that the other I wasn't going to be making friends in the mailroom. I wanted to make friends with like the, the producer's assistants. I love hearing that story. Um, I heard it on a panel, as he mentioned. I brought it, him in and uh, we talked about this particular story of being in the mailroom and working his way up and how he dressed for success. I just think that's so important. Uh, my next clip is also from director Stan Brooks. He's a really, he's a, such a wealth of incredible information and stories from a screening of his film in the White House to winning an Emmy, you know, casual. And uh, so this particular clip highlights that even as an Emmy winning producer, you might have trouble and challenges becoming a director and getting into directing. So he talks a little bit about the pushback that he received and resistance for directing from other people. And he had a particular vision for a project that he really wanted to put together. And he had to fight for that too, that vision. And so he talks about making this transition from producer to director and, you know, the television show that he had the most fun directing. I had attached myself to three scripts that I had sold. And I said to the networks, when this goes into production, I'm the director. And they'd all approve me. And then, of course, because I was making three movies a year, what happened was each of those movies would get greenlit and I would be in production or post-production or pre-production on something else. And they would say, well, if you go off to direct this movie in, say, Vancouver or Toronto, and there's a problem on one of your other movies, normally you would get on a plane and go fix it. 
But if you're directing, you can't. So I, I got unapproved three times in a row. And by the third time, that wow. was the straw that broke the camel's back. And so I realized it was time to make a decision. And that's when I, I sold my development, held onto my library, and literally stepped off the carousel of being a television movie supplier. The first movie was Perfect Sisters because I owned that script. It was a true story. I was fascinated by yeah, it. It was very, very Hitchcockian and very intense. And we were going to do it for Lifetime. And it's the only time in my career where on the second set of notes from the network, which kept lightening and softening up the story, I, I said, you know what? I, I know this is shooting myself in the foot, but I'm going to ask for the script back because this doesn't, this movie doesn't make sense if you take all the teeth out of it. I mean, it's, it needs to be a very dark tale and you keep, you keep making it lighter and lighter and that doesn't make any sense. And so I don't want to make it here. And so it went on my shelf and it had been on my shelf for about three years when I, closed my company. And this is a script I owned and really liked. And I went back to the writers and said, do me a favor. Would you do a pass if this is going to be a feature? And so they, as a favor, went through it and did it, took out the act breaks and made it, you know, made it closer to the original dark story, put the language back in and the sex and all of that. And then it was a script that I could make. And I had a lot of favors owed me in Canada. I'm Canadian and, and I could qualify for the Canadian tax credits. And so that became what was supposed to be a little tiny student film of mine ended up being a really important film because I got Academy Award winning cast. It's become, a, I, I still think it's one of the most successful wow. teen thrillers in Netflix history. It's still in the algorithm. If you type there in you Teen go. Prime, uh, it still pops up. And it's been every time it comes up for renewal where I could take Aww. it out and sell it to someone else, Netflix says, nope, we want to. So they've renewed it three times. So uh, and, and there's been, there's fan fiction all. written about it. There's fan but, art. There's Instagram pages. So subsequent to that, obviously, you've been doing some yeah. directing for, for now a while. So how was that transition overall? What have been some of the projects that you've enjoyed directing since? Is this something that you I mean, in some of them, you've been directing and producing as well, like Perfect Sisters. I've had great. Uh, here's the thing. It's heroin. Directing is the greatest high. And I'm. I'm a full on junkie. So if you ask me what projects have I enjoyed directing, all of them and for different reasons, clearly the most fun I've ever had is literally like someone says to you here, this is a $450,000 Ferrari. We're going to let you drive this for eight days. Yeah. Bring it back the way you found it. That's what directing Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is like. It's a big, muscular, very expensive, incredible standing sets, incredible cast, incredible crew. And even though you're the director, you're like the substitute teacher. They all know each other and you don't know anyone. I love hearing Stan's description of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's just amazing. And I get really caught up in it and get some chills every time. And uh, I, he's directed two episodes of the show. And I included both links to the um, episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC in the show notes for episode one. So go ahead, check that out. Some great stories there. It's still, like I said, one of the highest listened to episodes on the podcast still. So my next director that I wanted to highlight was was Linda Mendoza. Now, Linda is the final mentor of the season. She's episode 21. She does mostly comedies, which is incredible. And she also, I mean, like, I can go down a little bit. So she's she's been nominated for multiple DGA awards, a Primetime Emmy, an NAACP award. And she won an Alma Award for directing Ugly Betty, as well as a Daytime Emmy for directing Sesame Street. So she's been all over the place. She's directed episodes of our favorite comedies, including Blackish, Grownish, The Good Place, The Mindy Project, 
and so forth. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So she's done that. She's done lots of comedy specials with your favorite comedians. And for this particular clip, I chose a story where she worked her way up from network assistant director, or, or AD in this case, network AD, on America's Funniest Home Videos. So she finally got that coveted role and she ended up taking a demotion and a huge salary decrease to work as a production supervisor on SNL. So she thought that experience would really benefit her career overall. So she was willing to take the demotion and the salary decrease and why she would do that. I started as the production supervisor on In Living Color, and then they moved me to the post-AD position. They needed someone to start to cut the sketches. So I ended up doing that. And then it was kind of interesting because we did the first 13, and they weren't sure what was going to happen with the show. And in that time, I got a call from someone about SNL, Saturday Night Live. It's actually very confusing that time in my life because... Because in Living Color, the initial 13 was done. I got a AD job, a network AD job on America's Funniest Home Videos. And actually when the call for SNL came in and I left that job as a network AD to go work as a production supervisor on Saturday Night Live because I felt like that was going to further my career more than America's Funniest Home Videos. I mean, I wanted to do more creative things than just that. Interesting. And so I did know by then that that was not a path that was that was going to be mine. So I gave up like, I don't know, around $8,000 a month to go live in New York. Like that was the pay cut. Wow. You know, but you kind of have to do what you have to do for your career. Those kind of sacrifices. I yeah. saw that as a sacrifice that would be important. And, you know, it's interesting because everybody does have their own path. Yeah. And we all learn different things, different ways. And, you know, I will say that SNL did prove to be incredibly important for me in terms of what I learned about comedy, what I learned about live television. But I also met Chris Rock there, you know, right. and, and you worked so, with him a lot. Yeah. I mean, that relationship at SNL is why I got the Chris Rock show for HBO. Oh, interesting. And that's really the honest to God, because he said to me, I remember you were one of the only ones that was always nice to me. Wow. Or something like that. He's like, you were one of the nice ones or something like that. Interesting. Yeah. You were one of the nice ones. I love that line. I love it. So kindness pays off in a big ways as did the sacrifice of a paycheck and a title because Chris Rock remembered her and she went on to direct 13 episodes of the Chris Rock show as well as an episode of Everybody Hates Chris. So that worked out pretty nicely. And in this next clip, again with Linda Mendoza, I asked her how she made the transition into directing narrative for TV because it was a different ballgame than what she was used to. And she said that was actually a particularly interesting story, and it was. So I really wanted to share this with you guys. When I think about her episode, that's one of the first stories to come to mind. Who helped her and uh, how she was able to transition into narrative TV. So here we go. Yeah. Oh, well, that's actually an interesting story because what had happened was Bernie Mac had a show on HBO called Midnight Mac. It was a half hour late night. He hosted, it was like a variety show. It was so fun. We shot it in Chicago. 
And Bernie and I were very simpatico. Like we got on great. I think because we were both Libras, we're the exact same age. And we grew up in the same exact time. So we had a lot of things in common, even though an African-American man and I'm a Mexican woman, we still had a lot of things in common. I kind of get that. Yeah. But anyway, so Bernie had done Kings of Comedy and he came on the Chris Rock show to promote that. And so I went back to see him and Teresa, his hair person, because I had done their show in Chicago and I was so excited to see him. And so funny because Spike Lee was there reading the sports section, of course. And he's like, Spike, this was my director from my show for HBO. And Spike, hey, like right back to his paper. I'm like, oh my God, that's freaking Spike Lee. Like I'm all excited. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so Bernie then said to me, I'm like, so how do you go? How's everything going? And he was telling me about his show. He's like, look, if that show goes, he goes, you're going to be on it. And so I, of course, call my agents all excited. Oh, yeah. And they're like, listen, you know, there's a process. We have to submit you to network. There's a whole approval. You know, if you do get on, it'll probably be the back nine. Like they hire new, they hire directors known and proven. And then on the back nine, they'll give a shot to somebody else because now they've got the tone set, right? Mm -hmm. Cut to, I get back from wherever the heck I was. I don't even know anymore. Hmm. And I meet with Larry Wilmore. And the next thing I know, I'm in the second episode. And my agents are freaking out. Yeah. They're like, it's amazing. So I went on and and did a lot of prep. And I, and I shadowed Ken Quapas, who was directing the, who had directed the pilot and was in the first episode the entire week he was shooting mm-hmm. while I was still prepping. Right. And I ended up doing probably a dozen shows. I became like one of the regular directors, go-to directors for Bernie Mac. And that's really how I transitioned to narrative. Bernie Mac, who I also think daily. So that was great. I mean, she goes on, she discusses the male champions and mentors in her life, of which there are a few quite notable ones. And again, mentorship is so important and can show up in different ways for you. And hence the title of the podcast, Mentors on the Mic. My next clip is with another female director, Kristen Hankey. So as a reminder, Kristen has directed film, television, the Broadway show Rock of Ages, of which she was nominated for a Tony for Best Director. Recently, she directed episode six of the Netflix hit Julie and the Phantoms. So here in this clip, she talks about how she started directing out of school and the ingenuity and resourcefulness she just took to do it. And uh, I thought it could teach us all something because it definitely taught me something. Here we go. I always feel like if you do something enough, the universe will pay you for it. So I was just always doing it. And eventually someone would said, will you come and direct our show? So in the beginning, I was in college, I was waiting tables and I would save up my waitress tips and I would produce a play with whatever Mm -hmm. I had. And I would beg, borrow and steal, like less on the stealing, but I would... (laughs) (laughs) Like if a theater company had just done a play, I'd say, what are you doing with your set afterwards? Can I have the set afterwards? And I would repurpose their set for my next show. But I would, and I would then talk to like, okay, who really wants to do costumes? Oh, this girl wants to do costumes. Oh, and she happens to work at a costume shop. 
And then because she worked at a costume shop, we could get costumes there. Also very aware of what other people's talents were. Yeah. And how do we bring people together so that the effect of the whole benefits all of us? Like we're going to make it with whatever we have. Yeah. As soon as I commit to making it, I always have more. She just did it. I mean, how inspiring is that? She found the resources and went out and did the damn thing. In the next clip, though, she talks about the transition from directing theater to movies and the incredible realization that helped her get through that. Here's Kristen Hange. And then the cool thing that happened in that time of my life, too, is I had always, since I was probably 23 had some sort of movie in development but never got a movie made so now you know i guess i was like 33 34 which to me felt like forever right (laughs) i've always had you know 10 years of having a movie in development i've never you know i shot shorts but never you know made a feature and i but i had all these films in development and i think at the time i actually had I had two films I really wanted to make. One, which is a film called Dear Dumb Diary that I was doing with the Zookers, right? So like Jerry Zucker, who did Airplane in those movies. Yeah. And, and then this film called Naomi and Eli's No Kiss List that I loved so dearly. And I felt like, I was like, why can't I get a movie made? You know, just I felt like, I, you know, like I was getting cock blocked yeah. by, by the universe. <laughs> and I remember having dinner with Doug Lyman uh, with a group of people and he had was making something he this director of swingers and he did the first born identity i think i don't know his resume fully but i remember he was shooting something at the time mm. that hadn't been greenlit from the studio but he just picked up his camera and started shooting footage and was sending it back to the studio and i was like oh, oh. that's it he's not waiting I had been waiting for someone else to green light me oh. in order to go. Yes. And I never did that with theater. With theater, I just go, I have a script. I'm going to plan a reading. Okay, I'm going to do a workshop. I'm going to do the next thing. But with film, it was like I was waiting for someone else to give me permission. Waiting for permission. <laughs> So good. Kristen is a wonderful teacher for creative thinkers. And I always heard her say this, give yourself permission and stop waiting for it from other people. I never knew these were some of the stories that led her to this idea, but that always really just gives me chills hearing it. What are you waiting for? Anything particular you want to make, but you're waiting for permission. I know for me, I, I've, I have that. I have that there are certain things like I've written a book, guys. I've written a book on the business of acting. It's about like 350 pages. Haven't done anything with it yet. It's just sort of hanging out with me. So I, I, I want to just do it. I want to just do the damn thing. So I did that with my podcast. I just put it together. I guess, you know take these people's advice and run with it. Our final director that I wanted to highlight from this season is Jason Ensler. So Jason Ensler's episode 16. Not sure if I added that Kristen Hange was episode 9. But Jason Ensler episode 16 so fantastic. He is currently directing season 2 of Love Victor on Hulu. Like currently if you go into his Instagram, he's posting pictures of being on set right now. Super super cool. 
and he's directed and executive produced multiple episodes of The Passage, The Exorcist, Red Band Society, Heart of Dixie, Franklin and Bash, and more. And like Kristen, Jason found every possible way to work, okay? He did PSAs for a friend. He pitched and directed this fantastic video highlighting alumni and entertainment at Brandeis University's alma mater, mine too. And he used that as his calling card before working at the promotion department at NBC. And then he pushed to co-direct his first project. So I'm not going to go quite into that story. But what I did want to go into quickly was at the end of the episode, I asked him a question from his friend and our first mentor, Stan Brooks. I thought that would be appropriate. What lesson he learned to help transition from light dramas to horror and how hard it is to be to not be typecast as a director. So directors face their own challenges too and sometimes kind of like actors, they're directing the same thing over and over and over again and sometimes they like it and sometimes they wish they could do something else. So I asked Jason about it and he had some really, really interesting thoughts on it. Here's Jason Ensler. One was from oh, Stan. Oh. Stan Brooks gave me a couple questions he thought I should ask you. I don't think he wanted me to say it was that's from a, him, but I think it's great. That's so, that's hilarious. I know. So <laughs> what? So what? It's so funny. I emailed him and I was like, I'm seeing. I'm I'm talking to Jason in a couple hours. I was like, if you have any suggestions on things that you might know or things I should ask, and he was like, got it. He sent me a couple. Okay. So yeah, one he knows said, where, he knows where the bodies are buried. Yeah. yeah, I think they were. They're pretty good. I think that they're good. Okay. So early in your career, you were hired primarily for light drama and comedy, and and then you started doing horror and became exclusive in that as a director in that, like that kind of director. Is it hard in the TV series and movie business to not be typecast? Very. Yeah. There was a time where the folks at one studio who I had done some comedies for were like, oh, that guy does comedies. And when their dramas came up, they were like, that guy does comedies. And then there was another uh, studio and network that I had done dramas for that I tried to get on comedies and they were like, they were like, you're not funny. So, um, so, and you know, you, you, you have two, there's two ways to go in this business. The first is what I call like the Ratso Rizzo way, which is, you know, after Dustin Hoffman did the graduate, he could have taken another role just like that. Yeah. And sort of made a, made like a niche for himself as that, guy for a while as he aged. Yeah. But instead he was like, I'm going to do something so completely unrecognizable to that, that you'll have to keep up with me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying I've done anything like that. I'm just saying it was an inspiration to sort of move around and to like kind of duck and, 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 and go, all right, what's next. But like I was saying, it's a little bit of a curse too, because nobody knows where to put you, mm. you know? Yeah. It's difficult. But if you, that's what you want, then like anything else, you know, it has to be, you have to set that intention and, and make it so. I heard an interview uh, with Matthew McConaughey the other day that he was saying that he kept getting typecast in his romantic comedy leads and it was doing really well for him for, him for a while. And then at some point he was like, enough, I, I want to do something else, but he wouldn't get any offers for dramas or anything serious. So he had to keep turning things down for a while. And he turned down a $15 million rom-com rom -com, where he was like so tempted to say yes, but he was like, I turned it down and it took a little while. And then all of a sudden the offers kept coming for the ones that I actually wanted. And that's when he started getting the, the dramas and the Oscar and all that stuff. So I guess it's similar. Somebody said, yeah, someone said to me early on, uh, sometimes all you have left is no. 
Yeah. Right. And I didn't yeah. understand it until I started saying no. And I was like, oh, that's how you pave the way to the something else. All right. So we're at the end of this episode. I didn't want to make it too long. Just like I said, a quick highlight reel on some of our directors. And I hope you really understand more about how you become a director. What are different ways to move up as a director? And I hope you've enjoyed just some of the lessons our directors have shared about directing and choosing their path and and following it to where they are today. And there's so many more lessons to be learned from these incredible mentors. So I really hope you revisit our episodes. There's Stan Brooks, episode one, Linda Mendoza, episode 21, Kristen Hange, episode nine, and Jason Ensler, episode 16. And I wanted to leave you with one more story from Jason Ensler as a source of inspiration for all of you budding directors, filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, creative types of any sort. It's a directive that he had from Quincy Jones, guys. And it's a great story. And it's something that I think we all should remember and take away. So thanks, guys, for listening to this bonus episode of Mentors on the Mic. Please like and subscribe and review and let me know what other bonus episodes you might want to see. I did a poll, like I said, on my Instagram, at Michelle Simone Miller. Follow me also on at Mentors on the Mic. Let me know what I should do next. And without further ado, here is our final clip from our director, Jason Ensler. I'll leave you with uh, just one yeah, please. quick story, which was I was uh, I was at a screening. I was this. I think this was this was even before the uh, Brandeis movie, um, and uh, Quincy Jones was at the screening, and we were at the sort of cocktail hour after, and we were both sort of by the meatballs, <laughs> and um, and he, he just he said he said how's it going. And I was in like a weird, like vulnerable place because I, like something happened with a film I made and it mm. was, it didn't go well. You know, it just didn't, it didn't get into where I wanted to get in or it got some bad feedback. I'm, I don't, I probably blocked it out. <laughs> so, and I kind of like said something to that effect. Like I told him like, you know, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> like you asked, so I'll tell you. Yeah. And, um, and he took me by the shoulder. I find like older men, I'll probably start doing it soon. They, they, should, like, to yeah. take, they like to take you by the arm. You're not allowed to touch anybody anymore. No. Um, they like to take you by the arm. <laughs> and they like to say, and they squeeze your arm to get your attention. And he took my arm and he said, he said, don't you ever give up. He said, you keep going. Wow. And I was like, I was like, okay, Quincy Jones just told me not to give up. So I guess I'll do what he says. Oh my so, God. So that was uh, that was a nice moment, and it was like, uh, okay, I took it with me. <laughs>